0: The Crude Audacity Podcast. the podcast the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers i am katherine mills all right guys today we will be discussing the digital oil field this is not a new topic but it is an ever-evolving topic and i think we would all agree that the future of the oil field is automation but will this bring opportunity or cost jobs This is a big question on everyone's mind, and yet the oil field is still trying to navigate what it means to utilize, automate, and learn from big data, and what the evolution of automation in the patch will actually mean. So, here to address it all, author, mentor, trainer, and the godfather of the digital oil field himself. Jim Crompton, welcome to the Crude Audacity podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining today. You truly are the godfather of the digital oil field. We have so much to hit on. So instead of prolonging this, I want to jump straight into your story. I want to hear how you got into oil and gas, why you made the decision to go into energy, and honestly, how you have built up through the ranks and responsibilities you have today. So if you could please take us through your background, I would greatly appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you. I don't know if the godfather reference is appropriate, but uh, <laughs> uh, maybe it's an illegitimate uh, relationship or something. But uh, I'm a Colorado native. Um, I was uh, born, uh, my my dad and my mom had a, um, a small uh, farm out in east southeastern Colorado uh, near the big, wonderful town of Los Animas that nobody's ever heard of.
0: I was about to say, never heard of that.
1: <laughs> uh, it's actually... The name is interesting. It was officially called Los Animas de la Pigatois. That's too long. French traders uh, camped on the uh, bank of a small little creek um, and were washed away by a flash flood. So Los Animas de la Pigatois is the lost souls of purgatory in French. (laughs) So, which is not a great way to uh, name a town, but. uh, It's a good uh, way to name
0: an oil field. It didn't go very
1: far (laughs) after that. But anyway, they they had a a ranch, which was kind of my, my. in my dad's family, my, a, a farm, and um, and I, I grew up there. But that dad moved around uh, quite a bit in the in the 50s and 60s, and actually ended up on owning a ranch um, in Divide, Colorado, which is probably another place very few people have heard of.
0: Like off the Great Divide.
1: Well, if you head up I-24 west of Colorado Springs, that's the place where you turn off uh, to the south to go to Cripple Creek.
0: Oh, I know where Cripple Creek is.
1: So people know where the Cripple Creek Victor mining area and gambling these days. Gambling. Um, (laughs) But uh, Divide was a little different. And my dad had actually a cattle ranch at 9,200 foot elevation, which that, again, is another not very easy profession. Yeah. Um, But uh, I grew up there till I was uh, about in third grade. And that's when um, uh, my my parents moved uh, down the mountain into Colorado Springs. Okay. colorado springs uh, kid ever since um uh graduated high school there and then in 1970 i started uh my uh program here at colorado school of mines where okay. i am a, I have a bachelor's and and master's degree in geophysics um and from from then on i mean you asked why did i go to Uh, minds. I I like math, I like physics, and uh, this seemed to be kind of the place to go. Plus, I had a a high school buddy who went up here. He was more, he charged up and researched about it, and I just kind of followed along and ended up here. Um,
2: (laughs) It's a good
0: place to end up.
1: (laughs) it, It turned out to be, absolutely. So, um, back then, um, the, in the 1970s, I tell my students, 1870s, and half of them believe me, right? So I, Do they really? I, I kind of wonder, you know, how old they really think I am. Wow, but, uh,
0: Google is not making us smarter.
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but it, it gets a laugh occasionally. Uh, but that That's my one gag line I usually try to lead off with talks. Um, 1976, uh, I was... Most of the focus of my uh, master's thesis was on earthquake seismology.
0: That uh, is cool.
1: I, I wanted to track earthquakes, you know, when I was... Uh, when are we getting rid the, of California? Uh, anywhere <laughs> between tomorrow and about 100,000 years from now. It's, Damn. it's not moving very fast. <laughs> uh, the, um, uh, and I, when I started looking around, I, it was pretty obvious after a few interviews that the oil and gas companies paid a lot more than USGS did. Oh, yeah. So I, I, my entry into the oil business was largely due to economic drivers um, you
0: followed the money
1: i followed the money plus the fact that reflection seismology was an awful lot like the same thing between uh, <laughs> uh finding oil mapping the subsurface and and tracking uh where earthquake potential might be so
2: that's kind of cool
1: that's uh kind of a not a very inspirational or direct i wasn't a Going to be an oil and uh, oil patch kid from day one. It just kind of happened that you way.
0: You know what's funny, though, is all you influencers, the ones who are really driving industry and making a difference, none of y'all ever planned to be in the oil and gas industry, and yet here you are.
1: Well, and 37 years later. I know,
0: exactly. <laughs> um,
1: I finally uh, retired. Uh, from, uh, you're not
0: really retired.
1: No, <laughs> well, I retired from Chevron Oil Company. Okay. Because uh, I, uh, I did start, you know, straight out of... Um, Gra- uh, my graduate degree, um, I, I think I graduated on Thursday and started work on Monday, so I didn't take much time off in between. Good for you. Um, and in between time, I had to finish up a project for a professor I was working on. But I, <laughs> I started it with Chevron in Denver. Okay. Um, worked and finished with Chevron in Houston 37 years later. So uh, I was one of those rare birds these days that spent uh, my whole career with one employer. Mm-hmm. I had probably about three or four different careers, but it was just one employer who yeah. gave me the check.
0: That's kinda cool. Um, you don't so, see a lot of that anymore.
1: It's rare and mm-hmm. it's becoming even more rare as companies, you know, will, will will boom and bust in basins, boom and bust in different functions that they want to play. So, you know, it, it it is tough to stay with a company very long. Yeah. Plus on the other side, you know, the loyalty, I mean, is does a company take you where you wanna go? Do you um, is there really the, a path this, for you? Yeah. Is and, is the career, and and the, the the short answer is a, you should own your own career. You shouldn't outsource it to your boss. Your that's employer. really smart. Yeah. And uh, I probably was not that um, uh, brave or, or or you know looking outside of the when Chevron treated me well. I, I just said, you know, thank you very much. I'll make the best of it. And, <laughs> and uh, I did. I was fortunate. It was a good employer. Um,
0: what were your roles?
1: Uh, chapter one uh, with geophysicist. Um, okay, yes, uh,
0: that makes sense. That's mm-hmm. Right
1: from what I supposedly trained to do at school: um, seismic recording, seismic processing, seismic interpretation, seeing wells drilled off the maps you make, that's all so that, cool. that classic <laughs> stuff. And you know, all I'd,
0: by hand though. Yeah.
1: Well, I had a big drafting table and I had my set of colored pencils oh, and okay. I had large. Uh, Long seismic sections, and I had my little ruler that I took the times off, and then hand put mapped it on onto the maps. And then, at that time, you know, because of the sparsity of data, mm-hmm. um, you know, interpretation was an art form more than a science. I mean, hundred percent. You didn't have a whole lot of data. You had to kind of vision things in your mind, which is one of the reasons about only one out of nine wells ever found anything because <laughs> the uncertainty, which was great, we ended up drilling a lot of dry holes and a lot of dumb places, but, uh, we learned and, and yeah. each, uh, each well was each dry hole was another way to learn and get some more information about it. Um, but you know, that, that was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I ended up, um, one of my early maps after about two or three years with, with the company, uh, actually discovered the, um, the painter reservoir in, in Southwest Wyoming. Really. really so, uh, that's probably the high point of my career. After two years, right? Then the other 35 years—you just, you know, just coasted at that coasted, point. Right? But, uh, no, that's the fun. That's the most most fun you can have as a geophysicist working in an oil company is have a discovery. There's no doubt yeah. about that, right? Uh, you feel like you know you've created wealth out of magic, right? Out of nothing. you've
0: earned your bourbon.
1: And uh, well, back then it was beer, but okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> Colorado School of Mines grad, right? We just fluid mechanics class at Coors, right? It's, so it's all about On Thursdays. It's all about beer. <laughs> um, but th- that was Chapter 1. I mean, that was probably about 15 years of my career. Um, then I was a involved in one of the seemingly endless reorganizations that companies get involved with. Mm-hmm. And um, I was a division geophysicist in uh, Houston, um, looking over South Texas and um, different you know, odd you know plays but um, was involved was asked to be on a study team to reorganize the IT function in the Gulf of Mexico in New Orleans this is the Chevron's business unit um, and after doing that for three or four months all the interviews and the studies and you know we were, we were trying to put two or three different groups together into a, a better functioning uh, uh, service organization Uh did that, came back, thought I'd, end, saw, I'd saw the end of it. But um, then I got the call that said, hey Jim, how would you like to lead this thing? You just recommended it, <laughs> and um, I uh, you vol
0: You were voluntold?
1: Yeah. I wasn't sure that that was the right decision. Um, uh, you know, you probably would believe this, is that most of my friends, colleagues that were geophysicists said uh, I was crazy when I accepted the offer. Excellent. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, thought I just made the worst mistake of my life, but it, it wasn't. I mean, um, I mean, I went to New Orleans, brand new. Uh, well, that was the first of my two international assignments with Chevron. Was going to Louisiana.
0: <laughs> How did you like New Orleans? I'm from Mississippi. Um,
1: there was, I mean, mixed. I, to be honest, um, it was it was new. It was I was learning a lot. I was treated extremely well. Um, Uh, I was I essentially came into the IT department as the IT manager so I didn't no career path through IT I just started at the top Uh, started on the general manager's leadership team Mm -hmm. and and all of a sudden these guys that probably had uh, quite a bit more experience uh, in operations drilling production etc and they treated me brilliantly I mean I couldn't believe how well um, you know, they, they accepted me on that. And so I got to see uh, offshore, I got to, you know, you know, expose myself to an entire, you know, new world, uh, with regard to all of this and the IT folks who are, I mean, by and large, I'm a, I'm, I'm a strong champion of the work that they do because they're underappreciated and overworked oh, yeah. and uh, they often get blamed for everything.
0: Um, yeah, when in doubt,
1: <laughs> blame IT, blame IT. So, I mean, that it was, it was a really a great learning experience, but, um, I really was in a foreign country. I mean, oh, yeah. uh, our, when our, our daughter then you went down uh,
0: for the Cajuns,
1: <laughs> uh, of course, the, f- the food and the entertainment and all the rest of that was amazing. But uh, uh, when you my daughter uh, was starting um, first grade and she went to a new school, brand new school, and they just pointed to the wall and said, that's the hole where we're going to get a computer one of these days. And so clearly, That's you sad. know, the whole edu- educational aspect of it was was not very good for yeah. a young family and, and bringing kids up and stuff. So Interesting. I, um, when I left, it was, uh, you know, I just had a lot of friends and a great experience, but, um, you know, it, it was a different uh, situation from Houston. Yeah. Um, the, um, so I, my second career was in IT, and I ended up even in um, – the CIO of, back at the time Chevron had about a dozen CIOs, so this wasn't <laughs> the top top job, but CIO for the North American Upstream Operations. That and, sounds and like
0: a pretty big job.
1: It, it was, and it was, uh, we brought a lot of, uh, all the time trying to uh, walk the fine line between corporate IT and then the regional or business unit oriented ones, which were very service oriented, very well integrated to, uh with uh, engineering and operation functions mm-hmm. and we got to corporate IT and, and you didn't even know you were an oil and gas company I mean because it was generic and it was data centers and it was networks and it was huh. supporting CFO which is you know kind of where most of the IT departments are yeah um and so it was that was two different worlds and one foot in both of those was uh made it an interesting but challenging you know kind of a assignment with that and then um well, I ended up I ended up actually going over to the dark side completely when I was in the <laughs> corporate IT department head of a group called architecture.
2: What uh, was that?
1: Well, the the design of the IT technology systems. Okay. And I'm a I'm kind of an informal amateur conceptual architect. I like the whiteboards and drawing stuff on them, but yeah. I'm not a a technical program um, I mean, I know enough to be dangerous, but you wouldn't want me really to physically design a network. <laughs> um, like I said, I couldn't code myself out of a wet paper bag, but I know what people do who are building exactly. uh, these models and what they're used for.
0: You can bridge the gap in communication. So
1: that's what I ended up in the, my third career in the Chevron. It was one of those bridging careers. Okay. And um, At that time, this is about 2001 or 2002, Chevron started its version of the digital oil field. And I know that's one of the questions you're going to ask me.
2: Exactly. Is
1: what does that term mean? But uh, their their field their program was called iField. I mean, other, Shell called it Smart Field, and BP called it Digital Oil Field of the Future. All the majors. ConocoPhillips had Integrated Operations, and everybody had a, 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 a marketing term, which is one of the reasons there is no one definition of digital oil field because, you know, it's kind of – you don't know what it is but you can you recognize it when you see it right it's yeah, like the they say that federal about pornography p- pornography to you. right it's <laughs> same sort of uh, background but um, uh, with that I uh, I got involved in that because that seemed to me to really fit my interest uh, the the IT was important but that really wasn't you know my cup of tea um, the engineering I, I kind of moved away from my earth science background and And all of a sudden, I found out my customer was more petroleum engineers than Mm -hmm. earth scientists. Yeah. The earth scientists still kind of lived in their very digital world. You said, you know, big data is not new to the oil and gas industry, and Mm -hmm. that's absolutely true. I mean, geophysicists have always, uh, you know, had big data. Yeah. Whether it was 48 channels or 80,000 channels, you know, there's always been big data. And my joke is there's, to a geophysicist, there's only two kinds of, Storage servers—it's new and full. Right?
2: Because
1: <laughs> as soon as you get more capability, we'll figure out a way to record more data. Uh, and, absolutely. And try to do more things with the seismic data, gone from two D to three D to four D, you know, in all all different ways. Fun stuff. Um, but I kind of lost my connection to my core functional background, and got into this world of, you know, the the engineering applications for the most part, uh, both reservoir and production, uh, drilling, and and then the, the, the IT parts of it. And as I went through this, I, I became the data guy, the data plumbing guy, if you the will. The data plumbing,
0: plumbing guy.
1: That's a little bit of, of reference to the architecture side. But that was a, an area that almost no one paid any attention to. I, I called it the the Rodney Dangerfield part of the, <laughs> the oil and gas business was – uh, you you work in data and there are a lot of people toiling you know and some of them are in the IT department, they have titles like database administrators and other people are just technicians or data stewards that sit in engineering tech roles mm-hmm. and things like that but there's a there's a group of people usually not very large but uh great contributors really good people who really care about data okay in all its different flavors and um And it was that—that was the area I kind of championed and tried to get rid of, uh, get 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 involved with. Okay. And it was all the way from the collection of all of this data, which is growing exponentially. Yes. The big data challenge, which is another phrase you're going to ask me about. (laughs) And um, and then how did how do you get it to the analysis? How do you get it to the simulation program?
2: Exactly. How do
1: you get it from and to?
2: How do you the make it The automation useful? system.
1: How do, you, how do you make it actionable? Yeah. Uh, and that plumbing part of it, which is, it interested me. and almost, it bored the tears out of almost everybody else, but it interested me. Mm-hmm. And I kind of made a niche uh, career for that. So
0: So you started the, the niche career of data scientist.
1: Well, data science to me actually has a, a very definite term, and it, it doesn't come from oil and gas. It comes from mathematics. And, yes, Operations research and um, and the, the the advanced statistics sort of thing. So there's such a thing as data science that you can look up the definition. And and while analysis is clearly not new to the oil and gas,
2: mm-hmm.
1: modeling's not new, simulations not new. No. Darcy's law started in the 1850s, right? But uh, we we never really adopted the term data science until maybe the last seven or eight years or so. And that came from the outside, not from the inside. Good. You know, we were we're analysts, mm-hmm. but we never called it a science before. Yeah. And um, and so now the the statisticians bringing their their R and Python programming uh, tools. You know, we just had SQL. I mean, Fortran, and you know, <laughs> that that was an engineering oldies but goodies. <laughs> yeah, very definitely. And um, so this, you know, to me, data science is a is a different thing. I mean. I I'm kind of off off the story here, but when I retired in 2013, mm-hmm. we moved from Houston to Colorado Springs, which is my hometown.
0: Yes. Beautiful and hometown.
1: It is. And um, as you said, I, I I don't do very good at retiring. Um, no. None of y'all do. So I started <laughs> a little one-person consulting outfit out of one of the rooms in my house and did, have been involved in data strategy, uh, building data foundations for oil and gas companies, and, you know, speaking to conferences and things. Yeah. Um, and then in 2016, I think it was, I came up to Mines for a, um, a, a it was the, the SBE Student Society. And um, the SBE president is part of their um, kind of responsibilities. They tour major college campuses with mm-hmm. big PE departments and talk to the students. Yeah. And that year, uh, Janine Judah from Chevron was SP president. And I knew her from uh, working at, at Chevron. And so I just came up to say hello and support her. And uh, I also knew um, you know Dr. Ramona Graves. She's Not real bet. well, but a little bit.
0: She's a boss. The
1: boss, yeah. The and,
0: boss. Uh, <laughs>
1: the, uh, at the end of Janine's talk, when we were just – shaking hands and catching up um you know dr graves came to me and said you know we're we're we've just agreed in the department to create a data analytics minor awesome and it was um undergraduate i mean it was just like oh i can't remember there's about four or five classes that you have to take specially in order to earn the minor and and so, so because we're hearing analytics from all of our um employers, uh potential employers of our students And they said, what are your digital skills? What are the programming skills of your engineer? And, you know, they flooded them with a whole bunch of these questions that they, you know, they got the fact that was important. But they looked at their staff, and and they really didn't have anyone to kind of create, well, essentially create the capstone course for the other course. It's not too hard to do, add analytics to well testing. It's not too hard to have analytics to reservoir characterization. That stuff they were already doing. But they needed something that, essentially put it all together and talked about the digital oil field correct so dr graves came to me and said can you build us this course <laughs> um, she
0: just cornered you didn't she
1: she cornered me I, couldn't get away. <laughs> I tried I, I but i couldn't run fast enough uh she got me uh, and it turned out i had just helped uh, an old friend of mine dr don paul mm-hmm. at the university of southern california okay Who's a former Chevron CTO? So that's the network here. It's a also small a world boss.
2: <laughs> inside
1: that. And I had built, helped him build a course that he teaches, uh, and at USC called Energy Informatics, which was kind of like what Dr. Graves wanted. Uh, but I had to. Um, I, I wanted to make it more practical. I mean, that was a little bit more graduate level, research oriented. Okay. And I wanted to put something undergraduate, practical level, that would add to a petroleum engineer students resume mm-hmm. and they could go in and said, I know how to use these tools. I've done these analysis. I've, I've done it on lots of data and yeah. and uh, things like that and kind of bringing them into, um, into this digital oil field world.
0: Well, that's smart that you did it that way because there is a complaint that academia and industry do not always align in terms of actual applicable right. skill sets.
1: Right. Absolutely so, true.
0: Yeah. So working with data is... Like that's key. That's how they learn.
1: Uh, and I think that's one of the advantages of mine's here is small commercial is it is been closer to industry. Mm-hmm. It is. It has a number of professors who aren't, you know, their whole career in academia. They've got a split between industry and, mm-hmm. and teaching. And um,
0: so you created this course. So what's happening now with it?
1: We're it's we're in the third year. OK. Um, it she is got off- you
0: three years ago. Where was I? <laughs> Jesus.
1: <laughs> I must have snuck around the corner. Or something, but, um, Elio got me. That's, that. he, he was one of my first collaborators. And then it moved on to uh, Dr. Bill Eustace, who's the collaborator for the course. He's the adult in the room because he's the tenured faculty member. Okay, so the adult he makes in the it room. legitimate. So. <laughs> um, third year, it's offered in the spring. It's a, a senior-level course for PEGN 440 Uh, But we also uh, make it available to graduate students as an elective. Good. And that's the 540 version of the
0: course. Oh, I like that. With all that you've done and all that you've seen, can you please take us through what it actually means to be a digital oil field? Because like you said, it is almost a generic term at this point, and there are many definitions. But what exactly is a digital oil field?
1: I can give you my definition because that you're is right. probably there, the best definition. There is no one definition. It kind of means whatever you want it to mean, and uh, that's certainly true with a lot of vendors, tech vendors, oilfield service companies, because mm-hmm. they essentially just often take existing products and add more sensors and call it a digital oilfield solution. Mm-hmm. So, but to me, it is tr- well. The one thing there is a lot more data available. We have a lot more sensors, uh, downhole on, on equipment.
2: Oh, yeah. um,
1: we probably have two to, to maybe even four orders of magnitude more data coming from the oil field they did when I got started back in 1870. Right? <laughs> and um, the from that data, we should be able and can, and in many cases, we've had successful use cases, s- determine more about what's going on, the monitoring surveillance. Mm-hmm. We're able to build more sophisticated models to tell us what is gonna go on in the future. Yeah, if things forecasting. Keep going I call it the future telling <laughs> new role of a petroleum engineer. Management, they've so, always come in and said, what's going on and why did it happen that way? But now they ask this third question is, what is gonna happen if we, if we keep doing this? So that's a, that, huh? that's a newer question. If I did that,
0: That's a newer question. The future, the forecasting?
1: Well, the reservoir guys have always had that question because yeah. they've done reservoir forecasting forever. But now it's it's involved in maintenance. It's involved in, um, you know, uh, the drilling factory. If I'm going to drill 10 wells in a row, I want to mm-hmm. drill them the right way. Uh, it's involved in um, what I call the convergence of OT and IT, which is the operational technology, the instrumentation and control systems, the SCADA yeah. systems of the world. Or we. Now, all of a sudden, engineers at the office want that data
2: absolutely It's it always
1: been captured and kind of hard to get at
0: we're looking at correlation. We have to have that data
1: and then you got the um, the analysis is on steroids now is uh, the third level which call I call optimization
0: yeah, what does that word even mean?
1: make things better, make things cheaper, <laughs> make things uh, more profitable uh, Make well, that's the goal, go faster, right? And and that's <laughs> making
0: go faster with less staff. That's what optimization is. <laughs> well,
1: that's productivity. In my in you would my hope definition. so. But um, th- those are all the economic drivers of, of of the digital oilfield. So my definition comes from some early work at Chevron. Is called S-A-N-O, surveillance, analysis, and optimization. Okay. More data, hopefully better insight, hopefully better invest uh, decisions, investments. Uh, productivity, uh, efficiency, you know, all that kind of adds up because I want to make more money with less effort and have less harm, uh, you know, and and with the the current environment. Mm -hmm. And yeah, some of that's less people. Yeah. I don't think it's a no people world. Thank Uh, goodness. um, But it's a less, it's probably a less people world. And because part of it, you know, human beings are expensive. But the. Uh, I'm expensive. Even uh, I'm cheap. I work cheap. I'm an adjunct teaching <laughs> faculty member. But uh, clearly, you know, we, we want to be safe. We, we don't, we not only compliant to environmental things, we want to reduce our environmental footprint. We want to produce more valuable product. We want to do it at less cost. The drilling factory, the drilling people have done a brilliant job over the last five or six years. Oh, yeah. Drilling fat wells faster, moving rig up time, much less uh, time between new wells.
0: Well, there's uh, you know, competition, and, uh,
1: the rest of that, and competition has yeah. driven it. But there's an awful lot of data and analytics that's behind why we're much more efficient at drilling. Yeah. So the drilling guys get it. Uh, every one of the functions have kind of moved have their own roadmap and curve, and you know how fast they move on this. They're all calling it on the same road, but. They're, they're, they're not going at the same speed.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So you had asked that the title of this uh, episode be called Big D's and Little T's. What do you mean by that?
1: The DT framework is digital transformation. Mm-hmm. And from what I have seen is, and this is kind of a, I guess, a normal human reaction, but the bright, shiny new toy is always technology.
0: Of course it does,
1: and, but, but we that, don't
0: adopt technology very easily in this industry.
1: Well, we we adopt it when we need it, we, we, <laughs> but we don't adopt it as fast as others.
0: I would and, agree with that.
1: And the, 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 there's a very good reason for that, because if we screw up, you just don't hit Control-Alt-Delete, and well, my life starts in the, in the video game, and I'm okay again, right? You know, when we blow up something, somebody gets hurt.
0: That is accurate.
1: And so there is a, a level of caution. Mm-hmm. There is a level of conservatism, you know. First part based on, on safety concerns, but also, we we do, look at things and we like to go second. I, I, I wrote an article once. I said the race to second place. Hmm. You know, Silicon Valley maybe always want to be first and fail fast, and you know all those those phrases you hear from, uh, the Amazons and the Googles of the world, but in our world we don't want to fail at all
0: exactly well we can't afford to fail most of the time and
1: for safety concerns no um,
0: even small operators one massive failure can take in a company under
1: without a doubt i mean um you think uh, the the um, transocean deep water um, well blow out 10 years ago for
2: macondo f- macondo
1: for bp there weren't too many companies that could take a body blow of that magnitude a no. 40 billion dollar loss they lucky on it stock was a major who like can that. pay to that fix it that would have wiped out Three quarters of of oil and gas companies that try to do that. So clearly economics can take you out. Safety can take you out. Um, Even just poor efficiency and, you know, if you don't make money, it can take you out. Absolutely. So, um, you know, and we're not like serial entrepreneurs. I mean, we we don't have that element of risk. Oh, well, I can go bankrupt and start again. We really like to keep going and Mm -hmm. we don't want to fail. And so we test and test and test and model and model and model. and, And then we try and then... But we really don't like to try till until we've seen three other people try it, right?
0: But we really don't look outside of our industry for those other people trying it. So maybe there's an opportunity to go faster if we're cross-disciplined.
1: Um, that's true, but I've been saying that for more than 10 years, so I know it's not easy to do. <laughs> I mean, I worked in a very large oil company. It had its upstream, midstream, downstream business. Yeah. Something like advanced automation was old hat in refineries Hmm. where it was brand new in the upstream business yeah and so even learning those lessons across industries within the same company is is as difficult to do as anything Hmm. we do have a strong not invented here i you know we're going to do things the the way we always been doing them the old expert i hate that that phrase (laughs) Uh, oh it's i hate it but it's real uh and you see the conservatism about that i mean there was the old phrase, you never get hired for uh, for buying IBM, the old IT world, or <laughs> Microsoft, or whatever. But um, you, we do tend to go with a proven approach. Yes. And this is one of the challenges of the new data analytics, data science, is they are bringing them a new set of insights, a new model, and the old guy asks them, well, what's the physics behind that? And they're saying, well, there's no physics behind it. It's a data-driven model using an artificial neural network, exactly. using a random forest kind of technique, and the guy just goes, "What the hell are you talking about? Exactly, I, I, explain it to me." <laughs> what words yeah. did
0: you just use? <laughs> yeah,
1: in in my language. Exactly. and uh, So the explainability of IT, the trend of AI, excuse me, artificial intelligence, the explainability of AI, the transparency of AI, is uh, is a really kind of important question, which which is right now where the industry is kind of. Half in and half out, yeah, of this this uh, data science world, because you know while it knows there's probably value in it, mm-hmm. and on there's pilots who've been very successful. You used a very good word, probably, and but you know the enterprise scale adoption of this is 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 different. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, very few have have gone all in.
0: Do you really think that that's why? And from my perspective, the title of data analysis or data analyst in a company. It's a controversial title to get, I think, because nobody really knows what you do. Sometimes when you ask, they don't know what they do. Like, really, what is supposed to be the role of a good data scientist in an oil and gas company?
1: Um, well, I agree with your, your term. That's why most companies are, are building these little centers of analytics excellence and kind of protecting them their data scientists from the rest of the company. I
0: mean, they're so literally So they don't need They're, them alive, they're right? siloed. Yeah, like, what's happening there? They have
1: created, well companies like silos right that's how we we tend to do everything with silos
0: but yeah we build
1: an analytic silo that's true so what but you ask what do they should do and it's to build um, data-driven models of physical processes Mm -hmm. uh, to solve real world problems uh, in different ways interesting Uh, they're they're usually challenges where we don't know the physics or we we know physical constraints, and we, if we do it right, it should be physics and statistics, mm-hmm. not physics or statistics. Okay. So you see the battle, the civil war between the two, and that oh, they, yeah. they've done that wrong.
0: There's inner fighting, like nothing Because it's before. it's not
1: an or, it's an and. Yeah. And that's I, I feel very strongly about the and. and. And with supervised learning techniques and machine learning, you can build the physical constraints into your data-driven model, and still you could produce something that's more reasonable. Okay, and you come up with answers that you kind of understand what you to do about it. I mean, I, I've seen too many papers and and too many presentations about where someone had no idea what they were doing, but they could build a model,
0: right? Yeah, well, that's garbage. That's, that plays into garbage in, garbage out. If you don't have the art of interpretation, On it's just On a pain. And, yeah. and part
1: of that is again, the it's kind of brainwashing the thing. But you come in and everybody says, well, artificial intelligence, machine learning is the latest new stuff. You're behind. You got to do this.
0: It's a marketing play. So
1: you go, it's marketing. You, you hire somebody who has that kind of background, who comes in and builds these models, that you have no idea how they did that. And they don't even understand the problem or the data that they just, but they could build it. Mm-hmm. And these techniques are such incredibly strong correlation engines mm-hmm. that they will come up with a, a fit between um, the data and their um, and their model, which is, is very impressive if you're looking at R squared. I mean, it's <laughs> a 0. 0.98. Uh, but correlation is not causation exactly. is a term. And you don't know if this is really relevant. Mm-hmm. I mean, what can I do? So I got this model. What do I do differently in drilling my well? What do I do differently in in running my, my artificial lift pumping unit or yeah. whatever. And and oftentimes the data scientist says, well, I don't know. It's just here's the model. Exactly. And so someone has to explain it or, I mean, they have to be with it through the whole process from the understanding if they got good data because you can't build a really sufi- – you can build a model off of bad data. Easily. That doesn't mean it's any good.
0: People do it all the time.
1: Oh, I, as a geophysicist, I could take – a random noise data set and make it look like a uh-huh. seismic section.
0: Uh uh-huh. All you need is the bump.
1: Well, I could, filtering techniques and uh-huh. correlation techniques. I could, you know, I could almost say, the old joke is, what do you what do you want it to be, right? Exa- <laughs> and, no. and the geophysicist can, can get you a section that looked like that.
0: Unfortunately, what do you want it to be tends to be a type curve plan of attack as well. But to your point, we have always been an industry of big data. Like, it's, always, it's just growing. We have all of this data. So what are we doing well what are we not doing well why is big data a buzzword you said it's a marketing ploy but what does it actually mean because it seems to me the more and more interviews i do the less that is actually known about big data so well, why now well, why you've does come, it matter you've come now? to
1: the right place because i know the answer
0: oh excellent
2: <laughs> excellent
1: no i'm kidding but um to me okay the you said the oil and gas industry has always been a big data industry I'm going to change that just a little bit. We've always been an industry of lots of data. Okay. And to me, big data means volumes and yeah. are increasing, no doubt. But there's always been lots of data.
0: It can also be bad data.
1: It's lots of data. I didn't say how good it was because <laughs> uh, there's a lot of noise in our data sets. There's yes. no doubt about that. Uh, it's also variety, and that's one of the things that's increasing over time. Back when I started – I only dealt with just seismic data. I didn't deal with anything else. And then when there I was went no in, overlink. When I went to interpretation, I there was a little bit of overlink with the um, uh, petrophysical data, the well logs, okay. the core data, okay. and the rest of that. But that was about it. I was in a department that I wasn't. You know, I'm not saying you weren't allowed to talk to anybody else, mm-hmm. but it didn't. You weren't encouraged to talk to
0: anybody exactly. Else. There was no interdisciplinary approach.
1: And then, so over time, we've been adding more and more different variety of data into a more comprehensive view first of the subsurface and that was the asset team Mm -hmm. kind of thing in the 1990s and now we're trying to look at the entire as much of the entire life cycle of the asset we can with the question am I making money Mm -hmm. and oh
0: everything goes back to economics
1: it always does but in my world of building a seismic section I never worked with any financial data Never? never? Somebody else did that
0: work. Okay, so the, you never Silo, did any... Threw
1: it over the siloed walls, and someone else did that kind of work.
0: So what sort of risk of application were you looking at? Somebody else did that. Really?
1: I just said, I think this is a really cool place to drill a well, and this is what I think is going to happen. And they, would, they say, thank you, Jim, very much. We'll go run the numbers. Really? So the oil industry has not always <laughs> been... We, it's not always been that integrated. Yeah. It is now much uh, orders of magnitude more than it was before.
0: How have you we are seen looking this, more
1: horizontal than vertical in that.
0: How have you seen this evolution through your time at Chevron? Because you, you're one of the rare few that stayed in one company. You saw many different asset, or aspects of it. So what was your interpretation of the evolution of an integrated team?
1: That's just a nice way to say it. I'm old, right? I started in a very functional, very narrow uh, way. Okay. And yes, the inf- what I'll call the information intensity of my seismic grew and grew and grew. I, I, I saw the the start from 2D data to cross lines to 3D information. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had 48 channels, and probably when I left geophysics, we were up into a thousand channels, right? Okay. So data volumes grew a lot, but I was still operating in a seismic-only kind of world. Um, still in a place where an awful lot of the data that I wanted or needed to really pin down my interpretation, the risk part of it mm-hmm. didn't exist. Interesting. So I created it through you, my art interpretation. Yeah. I mean I didn't lie. I didn't violate yeah, yeah. any data. There just wasn't another line where I needed that there be a line. So I kind of contoured through it, right? Okay. With some, there was something in my head that had a model of what the subsurface should look like. Okay. And I had a very fantastic mentor at the beginning of my career who was a real artist and you know, you, you, there are ways of making something look like a hill and look like a valley yeah. when the, you don't have enough data to really contour it like that. So you have to you know, sell the idea of your interpretation even when there's no data to, you know, to prove. Mm-hmm. And when you get good at that, you're just bothered by more data.
0: Exactly. Because <laughs> it
1: messes up your idea what it was. Um, then I, was, I lived through the asset team where all of a sudden okay. geology, geophysics, and reservoir engineering were put in one team. Yeah, to focus
0: and, on one asset,
1: and correct or exploration or production. Okay, and um, and we we all began to work with with our data and our applications and our t- toys to create the end result was a reservoir simulation. Yes, and that was all integrated. But then we never talked to the drillers. We never talked to the facility people. We never talked to the production engineers. Those were all the others, right? That the others. Us was were the people in the asset team. Okay, and that was also a. a Tremendous recognition of the fact that I wasn't king of the world, that actually the reservoir engineer was almost always the asset manager. There were very few earth scientists made it
0: to that. I don't think it's it's that way anymore, but that would have been fun for me.
1: (laughs) It was in the 1990s. Um, Very rare an earth scientist made it beyond a specialist. Really? Um, Then drillers came into the party. They became an us. They are fun. And uh, particularly if you're drilling a subsalt well in the Gulf of Mexico mm-hmm. and 8,000 feet of water and 35,000 feet of depth and you're trying to steer your complex well around uh, the salt, uh, they needed a better view of this subsurface to, got, to create their well path. Absolutely. So they became friends with regard to that. Okay. And clearly they, could, they had data of their own. They had all of the data created by the drilling operations, you had the MWB, MWDs, the LWDs, yeah. all this more real-time drilling information. And the directional drillers, of course, had to, uh, you know, if you aren't drilling deep water, you're drilling just on shore and you're trying to drill a two-mile lateral, the directional drillers need all this information. Absolutely. To stay in a 30-foot bench for two miles and stuff. So very data-driven, very, very intensive. But, but you had to incorporate... The subsurface and the drilling path. Yeah. If you did that, so that's the world up until about the 2010s in my my world. Okay. Now we bring in, uh, and particularly with um, uh, the the production simulation sort of thing is, uh, you know, uh, the reservoir simulation tells you how much oil you can get out over time over the economic life cycle of the reservoir. Mm-hmm. But now I want to know how much money I'm going to make in three months and six months and one year.
0: Exactly. Right?
1: And uh, and actually there's been a, a decline in the emphasis on the reservoir. Oh. Because we're be able to do It's like a movement it on will.
0: LinkedIn even.
1: Uh, it, it's coming back a little bit because the rocks still do matter. Um, you know, we're not, the whole idea of, how successful your fracking is, mm-hmm. you know. We need to know. I'm breaking something; that will stay broken, right? Um, well, fluid to I'm rock I'm fracking a, a child well, and I don't want it to screw up the pressure regime on a parent well, because we're <laughs> drilling within 500 feet of each other.
0: And yet, we've already screwed it up. <laughs> and we we we've we tend to.
1: This is the engineering versus the science mindset, and probably get in trouble here. But engineering is not a scientific process. How so? We do not try all possible. Combinations of the parameters to create a Gaussian normal distribution of all of the curves, and then pick what we want to do. We, as engineers, are and I'm, I'm a geophysical engineer, so I'm a half and half again. <laughs> but we we are economically driven. We want to yeah. drill successful wells
0: faster, better,
1: and uh, and so we tend to you know someone comes up with a very clever way of drilling a well, and then we drill a thousand wells that way. Mm-hmm. And then somebody comes up with a little bit better way of doing it. And then we drill a thousand wells on generation two of the completion technique. Hmm. And then we all gravitate. We're like a little bit like sheep, but we gravitate to a successful example. And then we do it a whole bunch of times. You add all that up. That's not a Gaussian distribution. That is not a scientific way of solving the problem. Hmm. It's an engineering way of solving the problem. Okay. And that's not bad. It's just different.
0: Hmm. Why do you think industry is putting such an emphasis on tools like Spotfire? Because arguably it is an amazing tool. I use it daily, but it is one of those uh, uh, options that keeps us from progressing. It is a quick, easy way to build a dashboard, to look at data, to look at larger amounts of data than Excel, but it isn't encouraging that further step of building the code from scratch, understanding what's going in, allowing that modification. why do you think there is such an emphasis on it in industry right now? Why is it such a requirement in terms of a resume?
1: Well, it's short answer is because we broke Excel. <laughs> I mean, we, early on, we uh, engineers, you know, particular production engineers, their core information was Excel based. Okay. And they would take data and they would do that, and then, I mean, there was there was analytics on the other end of Excel. Okay. Clearly, you could. Do data visualization. You could do regression analysis. You could do all kinds of things with Excel. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's called Visual Basic programming. Yeah,
0: Language, right? VBA.
1: It's not R. It's not Python. It's VBA.
0: It gives me PTSD. <laughs>
1: and we used to say that um, the best VBA programmers in a company were the petroleum engineers because really? they could do that. And of course. That no one they no one could figure out what their macro was. At, you know, it, it was a nightmare for an IT guy to get one of these Excel macro applications and then try to program it into a, I think as, you know, the one thing petroleumers don't do is document, right? You know, they call their spreadsheets according to their their favorite pets and, you know, they they don't document anything. Absolutely.
0: We can't give away our secret sauce.
1: Exactly. Well, they don't try. They're lazy. But uh, (laughs) uh, so we broke Excel because we got all of a sudden have too much data or too much variety of data. Mm -hmm so spotfire is the next thing it's the next tool to handle the variety and the volumes of data so it one it's a better data visualization tool
0: well you use it it, in your classes yeah
1: i require it in my classes now i'm not selling excel uh, spotfire is the best tool in the world there's power bi there's tableau there's click there's there's a number sas is the cadillac of all these tools there's a number of different tools. We use it be, one because it is used a lot in the industry. Okay. So it helps on the resume. I know Spotfire, right? So I can hit the ground running. They exactly. won't have to teach me Spotfire. Yeah. Uh, but you're right in a sense that it does have its limits. I yeah. mean, uh, there's if you go from Spotfire to, to TIBCO's TARE, you can begin to start building your own R code. Yeah,
0: exactly. And, and do
1: all the rest of that. And that is a direction that's going. I mean, I'm. The, the, the students that I have today have already been exposed to Python programming in good. classes before, which is good. Um, my buddies in the 1970s and 80s who were petroleum engineers were deathly afraid and allergic to coding.
0: Yeah, well, most of them are still today, even today.
1: It's a mix. It's a transition. Um, and, and that's one of my, kind of gets into my, one of my themes these days. The young engineers aren't as intimidated they are more interested. They'll do it themselves. Hmm. Uh, a 10 or 15 year engineer who still has a long way to go in his career, Yeah, they're the ones that missed the big buzz about programming. Okay. They're the ones still using set applications that, that are given to them. They have a, an ARPS equation embedded in an Excel macro that they can just plug in the numbers and it, the answer comes out the end.
0: Heaven help me. Oh my God. <laughs>
1: And, you know, I, I didn't know what that was until I, a couple engineers showed it to me. Uh, and then the 30-year engineer says, you know, I'm going to die before I have to do any of this stuff. They're hoping to. Uh, and they're, you know, when they're, they want to tape their, a, a football game on their VCR, that's their, their kid, they give it to their kid, and the kid does it for him, right? Yeah. That's that, uh, and I'm of, I'm of that generation, a digital immigrant,
2: not
1: a, <laughs> not a digital native. But now you've got a generation of digital natives who are petroleum engineers. Mm-hmm. And this stuff is fun. Yeah. And the hackathon, all the rest of that, I mean, is, is what they like to do in their spare time. Video games, what they like to do in their spare time. I'm now concerned about the career viability of the 15 year engineer that didn't get this. But now they've got a life, they've got soccer games, they've got uh, they've stuff they do on the weekends, yeah. they've got a life, they've got to work, and they can't go back and take these online courses which is probably 40, 50, 60 hours a week in order to try to keep up with with the Stanford's and the MIT's and those sort of courses that are being taught. They need something to keep them viable. Exactly. And that's the the next phase of work. Again, another advertisement for School of Mines. But we are trying to create an online version of a a petroleum data analytics certificate program. I like that. Just four courses. I had to take a five-week course on how to design an online course, right?
0: That's actually really uh, funny. <laughs> and there's
1: a group here called the Trephany Center that's helping instructors do that. The, the the academia is just like the industry. We've got some who love it, some who can't wait and said you're worried by it. Others have said over my dead body, I'm going to die first, right?
2: Uh-huh.
1: So And that's about online programming, uh, online courses. Yeah. Um, and there's there's a number of universities, I mean, University of Phoenix has never been anything but online. Exactly. Right? But then you have very University of Southern California has been doing distance education for twenty years.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mines is just getting into the game with regard to that. But it can address a, in a continuing education sort of form those mid-career engineers and bring them up to speed so they are good enough.
2: Exactly. Now, enough am I to make be dangerous.
1: A, am I going to make them a data scientist? No. No. They have to go to get their their. We we actually Mines has a data science degree program, but that's two years in the applied math department, uh, and it's not applied petroleum. math. <laughs> it's not a petroleum related. It's exactly. just general. Um, but uh, they have to have something that fits their life, and so they could. But they could still keep up because mm-hmm. increasing. You know, industry has this thing. I mean, that they, they'll train some people. They mm-hmm. will make some investment in their engineers in terms of new skill sets. But at a certain point. It's easier just to fire the old guy and hire the new guy, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and I don't want well, the people to get caught without some way of defending themselves. Exactly. In a in a mid career approach, so that's why we're I'm working with Dr. Usis and, uh, and and uh, uh, we got a post uh, a doctoral student from Leoven University in Aust- Austria, Ooh. Clemens Rainer, who's helping us you know put these programs together.
0: That's freaking so, awesome.
1: Hopefully, by the fall, we'll have two of the courses released.
0: I will be your first student. So the digital oil field, does it eliminate the need for science? Because we're seeing more automation. We're seeing more filling the gaps, less art of interpretation, or less emphasis on a subsurface evaluation from the art of tenure, so to speak. Are we really successfully filling the gaps? Are we doing it in the right way?
1: Well, uh, unfortunately, we chase... um, these you know what's cool things too much and so do i think it are we completely replacing and improving it no i I, do i want to chase science out of this uh the setting no i want but the the instrumentation the automation the analytics change Mm rules and in some way it takes human beings out of harm's way i mean if i have a robotic driller and a robotic um you know, a pipe changer arm and, and Kelly and all the and pipe uh, things, then I actually, I won't hurt as many people on the rig. So there's some degrees where automation takes human beings out of dangerous, dirty jobs. Yeah. That's a good thing. I think so. Um, it also allows a production engineer, instead of having to babysit 10 wells, they can look over 200 wells. Yeah. And essentially with right kind of visualization and alarming, they can go right to the well that needs help. Yeah. Without... Somebody in a pickup truck driving around every three days visiting every wellhead, right? Oh, we, pumpers. We wanna we it changes the job of the lease operator for sure. Yeah. But I don't think it'll I don't think and I don't think it should eliminate human beings. Good. It will change their roles. Yes. It is a human being plus the automation mm-hmm. things. I call it AI as a coworker.
0: Oh, I like that.
1: I mean, it's like, you know, Siri, can you tell me that, can you download my daily production report? And then, oh, by the way, can you drill into this thing? Can you tell me what the maintenance history of that? That would tremendously revolutionize all the damn time we take looking for data.
2: Absolutely, yeah.
1: And through a cool interface called natural language processing. (laughs) So if we can get that, I think that's the direction.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: We... You know, kinda the end goal is not automation. For some people the end goal is autonomy. Okay. Where like NASA, it sends a spacecraft off into space and the latency between the signals going back is so long that it human being can't control it. Okay. It, It it experiences some brand new setting. You have to build enough smarts and dynamic learning. Which is what deep learning is all about. There's statistics all around that. You can build that into the model so it can adapt to mm-hmm. new situations, and still not just crash into the moon at thousand miles an hour, mm. uh, like the Indian uh, uh, spacecraft did here recently did yeah. last year. Um, that
0: was a yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, so clearly, I think it's a it's a and world. It's okay. like science and statistics. It's human and automation okay. and uh, driven by the smarts and. The, the phrase, and this is kind of a digital oil field 1.0 phrase, that um, I think really sums it up. It's called managed by exception. Ooh. And what you have here is you have your physical processes. You have a mathematical representation of the physical processes, often called the digital twin. Okay. And what you're doing constantly is you've got through monitoring, surveillance, telemetry, all the rest of that. You know what's happening now. You can match it up with what your model predicted it should be. Mm -hmm. And it is the difference between those two that gives you insight of what you should do next. Okay. Now, most of the time, the model's wrong. Always. The model's never right, but sometimes it's useful. Yes, I was about to
0: say that phrase, yeah.
1: Uh, That was was an IT architect who said that, George Box. (laughs) But um, with that, managed by exception. The exception is between predicted and real. Mm-hmm. And one, and that is going to give me a lot more information than today's automation, which is upper and lower bound set points. Yeah, which is all about when the pressure gets too high, it's going to blow. So I don't want the pressure to get too high, or the pressure get the vibration gets too high, this is going to rattle and break itself up. I don't want the vibration to get too high. We're moving from that degree of automation into this idea of managed by exception. Okay. And a lot of times, the role of the human isn't going to be the one out there. Watching to see if something breaks, it's going to be in building the models, which mm-hmm. is why the petroleum engineers need to bring their science-based, exp- their physics-based experience, yeah. knowledge, into building the model in the first place. Yeah, They're going to need to figure out what is the right data. They're going to need to help the, the data science programmer into solving the right problem mm-hmm. and explaining it. Yeah. Um, and then they're going to be called in for specialist things when all of a sudden the model runs into something it can't handle. Okay, and it's going to ask for help and it's going to ask for help from the human um, thing because one of the things, if it's human against machine and we're talking about data processing, we lose Mm -hmm. because we can't operate near as fast but if it's talking about pattern recognition and experience and context we add value that today we don't have that autonomous brain that does it for us
2: True, and I don't
1: think it ever will because there's too damn much uncertainty yeah. In the reservoir. Yeah. You know, we have a digital, fa- use the term factory all the time, drilling factory, production factory. Well, we only built half the factory. <laughs> we built the stuff on the top. Yeah. But we didn't. We, we discovered, sometimes by accident, sometimes on purpose, um, and most of our information about the reservoir is indirect,
0: mm-hmm. with
1: lots of uncertainty. We'll never know exactly. We can't build a model exactly of the reservoir yet it's half my factory. Exactly. So I always have a, a large degree of uncertainty mm-hmm. and, a, and, and in that we have to have the human experience and this the fast statistical processing and adding them together for the, the intelligent oil field is a both.
0: It's, it's not a, both. a one
1: or th- it's not a just machines.
0: So how do we get management to come to the table for data? How do we bring the data and the science together, and how do we get the adoption of the proper ways to analyze and actually, like, eliminate this question of what is big data these days? How do we make that all happen?
1: Well, the the easiest way to do it is being honest about our screw-ups.
0: No one does that.
1: No one. I mean, it's, that's not human behavior, right? Because I don't go to my boss and tell him, "I'm sorry, I screwed up. I used the wrong data, and this model's wrong," because I get fired, right? We, you
0: blame uh... IT. <laughs> <laughs> or
1: they—they they probably fire IT and them and me if I do that. <laughs> but I think we need to know the consequences of bad data the, in terms of decisions made. Okay. Uh,
0: it's not the, hard to quantify, but nobody tracks it. So.
1: Well, we because it, it's embarrassing in a sense. I mean, yeah. I'm, I, I once with a colleague, put together a paper of best practices uh, from Chevron in the Digital Oil field, and it was a pretty good paper and it was adopted by one of the SBE groups, and they were going to make it a keystone you know kind of a talk. but I couldn't get it through my management. Hmm. They wouldn't let it, it was almost and this is 20 years ago, so I mean or no t- 10 years ago. So it, it, it is changing but slowly the fact that we need to share data i mean this there's, there's open data uh universe sort of thing going on right now about sharing more data between it is, people
0: it is a discussion yes
1: there's more open got gov things where the data you report to the government now is available okay. to the public true so there's some good things um but still we don't like to admit mistakes for human beings but unless we understand the consequences of poor data quality poor data sampling uh, lack of physical constraints in the models uh, we're not going to really go back and value all of the different phases yeah so we need a management who will do that not punish the guy for trying I mean you fire him for a stupid mistake that is intentional or deliberate or you know you should have incompetent mm-hmm. but you don't fire a guy for screwing up when it's a very complex set of models and when you're still learning and you have to have multiple trials in order to try to do that.
0: I do wish management thought that way.
1: Well, yes, um, this is the funny story. You go into management and you give them a probability S distribution and you say, this is the P50, the 50% thing of what what the forecast is. And they go back and said, no, I want the P90. And you go, I'm sorry, you don't understand probability theory, but you can't say that either. Fortunately, my generation of management is mostly out the door, bought their bass boat, aren't involved anymore.
0: Oh, interesting. The you next say, ge- fortunately, why?
1: Because They're- those paradigms mm-hmm. are going away. Okay. The next generation are more digital native like. Okay. And, and I could go in, and most of the most of the managers, and even most of my peers that I worked with at Chevron are retired. The big crew has changed, and I'm one of those that has changed. Okay. Now I just happened to change into a professor. But, yeah. Uh, I did. <laughs> I'm not in Chevron anymore. I'm not part of that management structure. The ones that are in their 40-somethings have seen more of it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, they've seen Cambridge Analytics. They've seen yeah. the stuff that has happened with uh, social media, and and all the rest of this. And the and they may not know, you know, fake images and all the rest of this, but they still know that data they they have a better appreciation that data is important than my generation okay and the next generation beyond that will even be better so we're moving in the right direction we're not moving very fast okay there's still a lot of knuckleheads out there who want the p90 <laughs>
2: who
1: pay no who think all data is perfect you should just get it and go yeah um don't ask any questions about uh, how you built your model uh, but it is changing in the right direction. I just, I mean, I, I wish it was going faster. Um, you still see an industry in transition. Mm-hmm. It is not there, wherever there is going to be. Exactly. But it is, uh, and there are those resisting. Mm-hmm. But I'm a Star uh, Trek guy. I mean, resistance is futile. This is going to happen. That
0: is a Star Trek guy. Oh, my goodness. The you're, <laughs> you're a minds guy. <laughs> So let's talk about the there. Where do you think there is going to be? Where are we headed in the next 10 years? We are in a prolonged downturn. It is an opportunity for a pivot. We have the opportunity to come in and restructure what it means to be an oil field company. How is digital? How is the digital oil field going to drive this for us?
1: Well, that's... Um... That's a really important question, and, and if, if I knew the answer, I, would, I wouldn't tell you, but I'd go buy a bunch of stock, and I'd get rich from it, right? But,
0: well, that's disappointing.
1: <laughs> but since I don't know the answer, I can guess. And okay. I can share that with you. Um, I've actually started putting together some thoughts around what I call the future operations hub. Okay. and Future that,
0: operations hub.
1: Now, you, you see this closer to reality today offshore than onshore. Uh, there are not normally manned unattended installations that are offshore that uh, where the control room essentially is onshore it's kay. or is in is built into algorithms in within the automation systems and the iot devices that sit on the wells okay um several of these sort of fields have been built uh, by norwegian operators and then the norwegian continental shelf hmm. Uh, as they move north in their place into the Barents Sea, the conditions are so hostile, they don't even want a production facility on the surface. Mm-hmm. So it's all subsea factory model. The closest human being is a couple hundred kilometers away. Interesting. On the end of a fiber optics link that's built into their oil pipeline. And they're sitting in Munkstad in the refinery, you know, operating the field, um, you know, in the Barents Sea. That is an example of how I see automation growing, instrumentation and automation growing. If I wanna do traditional maintenance on that subsea factory, I have a robot to it.
2: Okay, Because a yeah.
1: human being is just too dangerous for divers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I gotta program the robot to do the work. The human's still involved. Yes. Lots of data is collected. And you know, so you've got the whole idea of good data quality, sensors, Uh, Of course, sensors always go bad in tough conditions, so you have to have lots of sensors, Mm -hmm. which is a lot more data. Yeah. Um, And you figure out the signal from the noise through a lot of processing steps. So the human being is still involved. The human being has to have more digital skills to be able to just manage all of the data, build the models, uh, interpret the models, what's coming out. Onshore, you see less of that because, I mean, an oil well is usually not, manned anyway right it's just somebody drives by every few days Mm -hmm. or every day if it's a big deal yeah pumpers uh lease operators pumpers exactly however you're now seeing remote uh, decision support centers not so much remote control but remote decision support centers that are doing scheduling that are planning wells three months in advance that are uh, looking at predictive maintenance not preventive maintenance i like that okay Uh, so critical equipment we normally either run to failure if it's not that critical or and then go fix it and the alarm system will tell us when it broke or we do predictive maintenance which says the the oem the original equipment manufacturer says every hundred thousand hours you need to change the seals out and the fluids Mm -hmm. because this thing on our test lab that's all it lasted yeah well uh, however we can now instrument it so that Maybe it goes 150,000 hours. Maybe it goes 75,000 hours. Mm-hmm. But I could do it on a predictive basis. And
0: you gain precision.
1: And I could do it when I when it's most advantageous to me because mm-hmm. I'm out there doing something else anyway. Exactly. And I can lower the cost of yeah. the maintenance. So it's slower onshore than offshore. Uh, it is, um, But it's coming. And the you've got all kinds of people that are these AI startups just for oil and gas. Yeah, um, Osprey Data, Ambient, Beyond Limits, beyond, um, Seven Lakes. There's there's different ones now. Now their focus uh, primarily has been on artificial pump optimization.
2: Correct. Yeah. Which
1: is an inefficient operation. I mean, they found that maybe a third of the time, all you're doing is just pumping air, right? And there's no fluids moving. And what you're doing is wearing out the rod pumps, which is a thing that breaks the, the soonest.
0: Living money in the ground.
1: Losing money. So can I do that in a, in a better way? Can I use data from the equipment mm-hmm. and figure out a better way? Because right now you've you got a guy with 40 years experience to go around and he just listens to it and said, uh, that thing's not lifting fluid.
0: Exactly. Or
1: he could put his hand on something and said, that's gonna break. Yeah, Those people are now gone.
0: I know. And that technical skill set is gone. Even that trade-based well, skill set is gone.
1: It is, it is. And uh, what, so here, here's my idea though. My generation didn't trust data and models enough. Okay, fair. This generation trusts data and models too much. Double fair. And we've got to find the sweet spot between the two, the mm-hmm. experience as well as the analytics.
2: Okay.
1: Uh, if we did that, we could look at a model and say, that piece of equipment needs to be checked
2: mm-hmm.
1: and have a experienced human being out there checking it.
0: Interesting. That's a very good prediction. I like that. Do you have any other final thoughts for us as we wrap up here?
1: Well, couple things one data matters yes data quality matters um, data we,
0: quality I like that
1: we will be moving into the world of the digital twin and AI is a co-worker we, AI won't be a tool it will be a co-worker in terms of how we work on these things interesting the roles of the human change but they don't go away the factory we can only go so far because we didn't build half the factory yes and mm-hmm the half is probably more important in terms of the fluids that come from the ground.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, you know, Safety is a given, but also I think we have to move into being it more environmentally conscious with our sustainability of our operations mm-hmm. and not just wait for laws to be passed or regulations
0: to well, be made. Well, arguably we do a good job up front as is, but we can always improve. There's always the option to- We can, can
1: always improve. Yeah. And, and I think the, the oil industry gets a bad rap yeah for the work that it does do exactly uh unfortunately when we make a mistake rare but it happens it goes right to the headlines and we get uh we like slammed. our
0: gaslighting as an as a species <laughs>
1: we get slammed for every mistake that we make yep so we can't make mistakes uh but we can't be so cautious that we aren't getting out of the box and looking at exactly other ways. we need to learn from other industries um, well, I guess the guess industry is actually pretty good at many things, but it's not the best in everything. Learning that requires you, know, some people moving around and, and taking still, the, the, the most effective knowledge transfer mechanism we have in the industry is moving a human being to another job. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, we don't tend to learn um, any other way.:
0: That's unfortunate. Because we also. It means we're <laughs> slow
1: in, in learning new things.
0: Also, it means that when we move to another job, it's no longer our problem, which is a problem.
1: Well, we we don't have very good knowledge capture sources, right? Yeah. So, how do you remember what I knew before I left?
0: Exactly. That's a good way to put that.
1: Now, I, I, I used one of the jobs, well, the titles I had at Chevron was a Chevron Fellow.
2: Chevron Fellow. What is it's, that? It's not
1: a gender-specific term. It's <laughs> not a fella. It's a fellow, like British way to be a PC. <laughs> Wait, but it uh, there was a female fellow. So I mean, I, I could, several of them. Um, it essentially, was a designation for a British academic term. It's been around for genera- uh, hundreds of years, but essentially, it's a it's a domain expert. Okay. And it wasn't a job. It, it was kind of a title where you were allowed to. There's about two dozen of us, and we got together and we had a big mentoring program for That's future cool. technical experts. Can you all
0: still do that for us? Huh? Can you all still do that for us?
1: Can I still do it? Well, <laughs> I'm trying.
2: Um,
1: and it's uh, we actually put on a technology fair for senior management oh. to show them what cool new stuff was going on.
0: That is really cool. So we
1: could talk to the the top deck and we could we could help build up, you know, the people the succession plans behind us. Yeah. And But still, the best, it with with that great program, and it was started at Texaco and adopted by Chevron after the merger, it was a great program, still going on, still going on strong. This, the best way for a fellow, male or female, to share their experiences and knowledge was kind of one-on-one mentoring.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: More often than not in a bar with a beer, right? Or a bourbon, or wine, yeah. depending on what it was.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. I agree.
1: And but and while that is successful,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's hard to clone over 10,000 people who need it.
0: Exactly. You can do
1: it for 50, but you can't do it for 10,000.
0: Yeah. So inevitably, we will lose some skill set.
1: We are. I mean, I wrote another article that said we used to know how to do that. <laughs> and it's because... We bowled all our knowledge up into a single individual, and they left, and there was no replacement.
0: Well, you're actually quite interesting to follow on LinkedIn. I do like the articles you've been posting lately.
1: I'm working on my third book. Yes. So I've written two, co-authored two previous books. One of them was called The Future Belongs to the Digital Engineer, which yes. I think is, um, uh, you know, it, it says a lot about my, uh, my attitude towards all this. But the, the one I'm doing now really is a change management book, and it's called The Digital Canterbury Tales,
0: the Digital Canterbury Tales.
1: and Which is the one I'm kind of releasing one article at a time on my LinkedIn profile. But, uh, of course, you go back to the 14th century. Geoffrey Chaucer wrote on his famous book about pilgrims that were moving, going mm-hmm. from London to Canterbury. Yes. And each of the characters had their own story. and Correct. they there was so whole chapters about these characters. So I, I adapted that metaphor. And I I've taken 24 characters from an oil and gas company. From CEO to lease operator.
2: Okay.
1: Asset manager, CTO, CIO, all those things. And I've written a story about how they look at the digital transformation of oil and gas. Mm-hmm. And of course the lease operator is worried about this gonna some robot's gonna take over his job, right? Of course. And the CFO is saying, Show me the money, I wanna know where all this stuff's you know, how do I how do we make money from this digital investment?
0: Sounds like you were in one of my meetings earlier today.
1: <laughs> and the CEO said, Well, you know, I, I just went to this conference at a fancy place, and the management consultant said I'm a behind. So how do I catch up? Exactly. So you got 24 stories about this from their perspectives. Okay. Now I, I unashamedly stole a lot of the personas from people I've known over the last 40 some years.
0: Hey, art of interpretation, man.
1: And, uh, but I hopefully it will help describe why this is harder than it seems to be. Okay. And, you know, tech people just just buy more of my stuff and you'll be better off. Well, yeah. not really. No. You can buy the kit, but you have to change the way you work. Exactly. The big D is the overemphasis on digital technology. The small T is about how hard it is for us to change the way we do work.
0: Okay. When is this book coming out? You already have two out.
1: The draft is written. I'm waiting on well, I, uh, illustrations. I went to a local high school art club. And I'm trying to get amateur artists to uh, to illustrate some of the characters in the book, like a medieval knight flying a drone and I like things that. like that. Uh, and once I get that done, which will be the summer, okay. it'll, it'll move towards publication.
0: Well, heck, if anybody is listening and they want to get in touch with uh, Jim about any of his other books in the meantime, hit him up on LinkedIn because it is definitely worth your time. Well, Jim, to take us out, what is a book, podcast, or other resource that you would recommend we know your books, so what is something you've read recently that has brought you value that you would bestow upon others?
1: Well, I have to acknowledge after written, writing two books that nobody buys books anymore.
0: That is unfortunate. <laughs>
1: uh, but it's you know unfortunate. The the whole management elevator speech uh, have to can't read more than a page and a half, you know, sort of thing is is gotten to us. I'm going to give you blogs instead of books.
0: Okay, blogs. There you go.
1: Because uh, you actually sit there and. I, this whole idea of video blogging, I think, is is gonna be the way that.
0: So vlogs. The, vlog, yeah. Vlogging. 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 Okay. It's not
1: flogging, which sometimes <laughs> you can get. But um, <laughs> the um, if you do a bad vlog, you get flogged. I think. I think that. <laughs> the um, the so uh, for those of you that are members of SPE, it's cheaper. Otherwise, it's this will cost a little bit of money. But there's two series. Um, first one is, um, is it's really kind of the history of the digital oil field. Okay. In three parts. Okay. And it's put uh, developed by a, a, a friend of mine and a long time digital oil field guy. His name is Tony Edwards.
2: Tony Edwards.
1: And he's with a company now called Step Change Global. Okay. Which is kind of a UK Norwegian outfit that helps people helps operators build these remote decision support centers. He came from uh, from BP so he's way back there in the 2000 he's been in this game for 25 years or so he did three uh, series which are on SPE webinars and they're only uh, 45 minutes each uh, that's nothing uh, so you should be able to do that Um, that that I I recommend because it's a real great history about where where we were from 20 years ago up till now and then I had the opportunity to in a similar kind of way three 45 um, well, it's a little bit longer than an hour plus uh, webinars on SPE that are essentially an encapsulation of my digital data analytics course. Okay. And again, they're, you can sit and listen to them. Um, you can make dinner. You can do yeah. other things. You can do whatever it is while you're, while you're watching the video. So I, I think the best things I could talk about today are those that are most easily consumable. Yeah. And those are two that I'd offer up.
0: That is awesome. Well, Jim, thank you so much for taking the time today. You have provided such value. This has been so interesting. I really like your perspective of where we've been, where we're headed. And I can't wait to see how the evolution of the digital oil field plays into all those roles. So thank you so much for taking the time. brought you any sort of value go online rate review subscribe also if you have any topics or influencers you would like us to feature you can get in touch with us via facebook linkedin instagram or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com thanks so much for your engagement and until next week give them hell